Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of Digital Dissection, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look into our favorite properties. Today's episode hits the go baby go button as we get uh, wired up here to show a little bit more appreciation for the 2000 action thriller Gone in 60 Seconds. Before we talk chocolate malts, rent-a-cops, and truck driving school, here are a few housekeeping items. We are Joe and Mark, two dudes who love talking movies, video games, and pop culture in general with you. We're a humble operation that needs your help by liking, commenting, and subscribing. And here's how. You can find us on YouTube at Digital Dissection Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for at Digital Dissect One or Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. You'll notice we say this pretty much every week. Uh, what this does is help us to grow and to keep making sure you've got at least an hour in your workday covered. Now, let's ride. All right, Mark, listen to this here. Like, let me know if you've ever done this before, because I know I have. Right before getting into my car, I dug into a trunk in my bedroom, dusted off an old leather jacket, held it up and just said, you are a bad man. And then I hopped into that car and we drove. You've done this before, right? No. Oh, okay. Just me and Nicholas no. Cage then. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, thought this was something that, that more people had done, but maybe that's because not a lot of people really appreciate Gone in 60 Seconds as much as we have. I, I would say that uh, maybe I should have lied there just to show my fandom a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> it's okay. So it turns out really it is just kind of just me and Mark's going along with this episode. Uh, no, that's not true. You do like this quite a bit. It's true. I do love this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. And then, like, I think this movie, like, it one, it is underrated uh, because it did come out at the same time as another, roughly another, at the same time as another car franchise, which really you could say is a franchise because they've had like a thousand movies by now with uh, the Fast and Furious series, which I am not putting down. Those are fantastic. I love those movies. I they're great, but this one tends to have more of a special place in my in my cinema and nerdy heart than the fast and furious movies have even though they're on like i think the ninth movie or the eighth movie i think it's the eighth movie coming up and could, uh gone in 60 seconds is just uh just what it's two it's uh the original and then the reboot one in uh the 2000s yeah yeah that's all we've got for this franchise unfortunately um and i i mean i'm happy what we have because what we have um in the 70s um, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, which for the for actually for the longest time after me seeing the, the one in the 2000s, I had no idea it was a reboot. Um, and I think probably for uh, at least like two, three years. And then I, had, I remember randomly walking through, I think, like of all places, like a fleet farm and finding a DVD for Gone 60 Seconds. And it was the original one from 1974. That sounds right. Yeah, 74, um, which is. A dramatically different movie they only borrow a few things from the original um 1974 movie um you've got the the main car being a mustang uh that's being driven except they are two completely different ones uh one's a 73 mach one in the original and 
the one in the new one is a uh, uh, 67 GT 500 with uh, some special plasticking molding around it to make it look just, just beautiful. Um, and that is, I think one way just in itself right there is a reason that draws people into this movie is if you're just a car person and you appreciate vehicles, uh, like the, you just go right into the movie um, just because of that. But getting back to what I had before, um, other things that it borrows is basically like more or less the plot because it does revolve around stealing cars. I think there was some sort of, I'm guessing it was based on some sort of statistic in the seventies that it only takes about 60 seconds for a thief to steal your car. <laughs> um, so lock your doors and all that good stuff, um, citizens, because your car could be gone in 60 seconds. You know, one thing I wanted to point out to you before we get too far away from it, the version of Eleanor, the 67 GT 500, mm-hmm. um, they actually made 12 of those and seven of them survived production. Um, they're actually designed by uh, Chip Foose as well. If you've ever watched. Oh, yeah. Holly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's the one that, that put together that that combination of, you know, classic American muscle car and plastic. Well, good for him. I mean, it's uh, I mean, that's basically I mean, at least in the uh, definitely in the car world now, um, if you ever like look into like a 67 uh, GT 500, there is uh, basically like you'll see we'll have like 67 GT 500 E for Eleanor uh, because of this movie. And you mm. uh, basically can buy body kits to basically make a clone of the one from the movie. Uh, and it's because of that, like, it's just one of the most iconic movie cars of all time. Uh, and I know, like, it's definitely, like, still, like, I think my, like, top five cars that I'd ever, ever want to own in my life. Um, the 67 GT 500E is pretty much right at the top. Except every time you try to get it, something bad happens, right? Oh yeah, there's that one time I, I drove it right off the Long Beach Pier. Um, every time, every time you try to get to that car, something bad happens. It's a unicorn, which is impressive since you've never actually lived there. Never lived in there. Uh, lived there. Uh, I think I've been to California for roughly 24 hours and was nowhere near Long Beach. So <laughs> that makes that whole feat even that much more impressive. Well. Here's a couple of things I wanted to get into just just to mm-hmm. talk about this film for a minute, because very similar to Ghostbusters, we've got some collaborators on this film who have worked together, who have seen some you know pretty good success uh, with other blockbusters. And it's really what kind of makes this entry, you know, in their careers kind of an anomaly. It's a little bit strange that they all came together and the stars just did not align this time. Um, now, the first person I wanted to mention was the director, who was Dominic Senya, who actually worked with Nicolas Cage several times. Um, so obviously, you know, gone in 60 seconds to this film, mm-hmm. but also 2011 season of The Witch. Oh, he was the, that was the director, huh? All right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that movie? Because I remember enjoying almost 95 percent of that film <laughs> and it just falls apart in that last five percent. Uh, yeah. But either way, mm-hmm. um, that's just one connection. You know, that's mostly just a, a cage and Sena connection. But mm-hmm. the big name here that a lot of folks will probably recognize would be Jerry Brockheimer. Yeah. Who's the, the producer, right? So, yeah, like basically the, uh, the action producer of the early 2000s and late 90s. Brockheimer kind of had his hand in almost every major action movie of that, of that era. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically, three pretty big Nick Cage ones. So mm-hmm. we've got obviously The Rock, which. The- 
I mean, that should be in the Smithsonian if it isn't already. Yep. Just, um, just one VHS and DVD just right next to each other <laughs> yep. in a nice glass case where yep. no one can touch it. And right next to that case would be Con Air, which is oh. also another Brockheimer and Cage. You know, Beautiful. Uh, and which one thing that I would like to know, because I'm not, I've never looked into it. Is that his real hair in that movie? Is it really that long? Did he grow it out to that length specifically for that role? To be honest with you, if somebody told me that it wasn't, I would still would not believe them. Wouldn't believe it. That thing no. looked Maybelline, like incredible. Yeah. Oh, he was just born with it. I'm telling you. Oh, yeah. there, I mean, you yeah. could watch that movie every time. And there's a very, very recognizable scene where his hair is just blowing in the wind. Oh, and yeah. It's, 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 it's gorgeous. It's free flowing. There's no way it's fake. You, it could be fake. But you couldn't convince me of it. Oh, yeah. And don't be fooled by it. the fact that that Nick Cage's hairline looks like Lake Michigan, you know, in the deep freeze in, <laughs> in December. But we're, we're going to say it's his real hair today. Real hair. I mean, it doesn't doesn't grow forward. It's just all back, all party, no business. That's, that, that's Nick Cage. You know, I guess you just can't get it all. But no, I mean, know. when you when you own your own island, really, really, can you say you have any business associated with you? Nope, you can't. Yeah. I'll fire. He also owned like two different two islands castles at one point, didn't he? He did what? I'm pretty sure Nick Cage owned two castles at one point too. Why wouldn't he? I have no idea if that's true, but I'm going to completely agree with it. This is a man who, in my mind, would probably probably would have three castles if it were up to no one. It's kind of like when MC Hammer was making his mansion and oh, he yeah. put in two waterfalls, and yeah. someone's like, "I know you've got like five here, but we think five's a bit much." And Hammer's like, "Okay, two. But no fewer, no less than two waterfalls. If I have a house that has any any less than two waterfalls, we're tearing it down. We're starting over from the beginning. And you're all fired. And I'm getting new people who will give me my two waterfalls. And, and anyone who has waterfalls, I, I'm pretty sure it's just because of the timeless you know, advice of TLC, right? You just don't want to go chasing them. No, so just you, build them in your house. Exactly. You cut out that whole, the whole chase. Since I don't have to chase it, I just wake up and they're there. <laughs> well... Well, before we get too far into, you know, building out your own uh, waterworks in your home, the, the <laughs> last big Brockheimer film uh, outside of this one would be National Treasure, you know, oh, which, mm-hmm. I mean, say what you will about those films. But the one thing that connects all four of these is that there's a level of entertainment value to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if the room doesn't need as much oxygen as it normally would to enjoy it, still, they're... They're pretty fun, just you know, just for what they yeah, are. Completely, and you have to look at just the pure magic that uh, at least National Treasure was, because I think it's the one movie where Sean Bean didn't die. He lived that entire time. Yeah, he gets caught, but but he survives. So good on those two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. I mean his ability to die is just second to none. So mm-hmm. if he survives one of those movies, he's probably got the the champagne on ice. Um, <laughs> but, but a couple other quick hits for this movie though, because mm-hmm. there are actually a couple accolades and a few firsts here that I want to point out. Ooh, um, okay. So the trailer for this movie mm-hmm. is unique because it's one of the first major blockbusters to actually be narrated by a female voiceover actor. Ah. Um, so her name is Melissa Disney. She actually narrated the the uh, yeah the theatrical you know cut trailer for this movie, mm-hmm. um, and so that just it's been widely attributed to Gone in sixty seconds that this is the first example of it. Um, so if you think about the the like the early nineties action movies, even the eighties to an extent, you know you, you've got pretty much 
anyone who smoked two packs of cigarettes a day was able to narrate a you know a movie trailer in a world where yeah. a man loves cars so much he has to take all of them yeah that's 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 how you yeah. that's how you introduce something in the 80s and 90s was just that one thing and it's always in cars in one night yeah <laughs> yeah so th- so this one didn't have don lafontaine you know narrating it it mm-hmm. was it was melissa disney for those of you that want to keep melissa that history disney. knowledge which there's no way that's a stage name impossible <laughs> no. yeah like buck naked right there's no way it could be fake. <laughs> but either way that one's that one's kind of a, a cool little item that i found when i was mm-hmm. doing some research on this the other uh lesser known accolade for this movie or i should say not an accolade because technically the movie didn't win this angelina jolie lost worst hairstyle at the stinkers bad movie awards <laughs> to forrest whitaker and john travolta's battlefield earth haircuts and looking back at it, they all kind of look the same, don't they? They are a bit the same, but how did Battlefield Earth not win every bad possible award and lose every good award? That movie is in itself just one of the worst excuses of cinema <laughs> that I have ever watched um, yeah. with, with big money and big names put into it. And it was just horrible. Um, yeah, I guess it's all like, you know, white person dreadlocks uh, for both. Um, I guess not Forrest Whitaker, but <laughs> I wasn't going to correct you. But <laughs> it's like not Forrest Whitaker, but I mean, John Travolta had white person dreadlocks. Um, yeah, ba- based on what I know about Forrest Whitaker, I was like, that one didn't. Doesn't no, he's very, very not white. Forrest yeah, Whitaker. He, he's passionate. He's going with it. I'm going to let him do it. Yeah. <laughs> I really have no idea who any of these people are. Um, I'm making this whole thing up as I go along. <laughs> so well, that's per- Mark that's, does yeah. all of the research. I'm just here for banter. And if I get it wrong, I will never acknowledge it. Yeah. And that actually brings me to one of our, our last points here about what happened with this movie. Mm-hmm. So Disney actually wrote off this film as a loss. And wow. Joe, do you have any guess as to what that number could be? Uh, it couldn't have been much. It has to be. I mean, I'm thinking that you look at production and advertising and you look at how much money it made. It had to be barely, I'm saying $1. Disney lost <laughs> roughly $1 on this movie. Well, you know how we love our money math here as well as inflation costs. So mm-hmm. here's what we're going to do. We're just going to go through the, the, the straight up numbers on this. So the okay. budget, the budget for the movie was estimated between 90 to $103.3 million. So okay. So that's that's just the I'm pretty sure it's the, just the movie budget itself. I don't know if we're talking marketing, mm-hmm. um, but the box office was two hundred thirty seven point two million dollars. OK. And the Disney write off ended up being a two hundred two million loss. So if you translate the year 2000 into twenty twenty one dollars, we're looking at about a three hundred twenty three million dollar loss on their taxes for the year. Huh. So it's. It's kind of a shame that you and I have such an adoration for a film that from almost every other angle, financial, you know, the, the critics, and it doesn't matter if you're looking at the critics or the fans, people just did not like this movie. Yeah. Yeah. That blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I just, everything about this movie, I just really, really liked it. And we're like, when I, when I first watched it uh, with my, I watched it with like car friends in high school and like, we all loved it. Um, and like, you could have taken every human being out of that movie and just had the cars driving around still would have loved it. Um, 
But like then you know, I watch it on my own and when it's not just me and my car friends and I still love it. And it's more than just the cars to me. Uh, so, yeah, this is this is one of those times where apparently I just legitimately really like what everyone else could, would consider to be a bad movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really kind of a mismatch. I mean, when I think mm-hmm. of the movies I have on my shelf, I've got, a, you know, I've got a lot of Academy Award winners up there, not being snooty or anything, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of films that I have up there that aren't guilty pleasure style films. You know, I'm, I'm looking at you, Euro Trip and Beer Fest. <laughs> but, but people were brutal towards this film. I mean, if you look at the Rotten uh-huh. Tomatoes side of it, it was a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oof, ouch. Um, you know, IMDb has a little bit more sense and there's as at 6.5 out of 10. Yeah, what well, Metacritic has it at 35. So yeah. also low, also row, uh, low. Uh, yeah, it got destroyed. Yeah, you know? this thing just got, it's got just beaten up. <laughs> yeah. Horribly. The, that, that was actually probably the most surprising part of the research on this was that I, I look back at this and obviously it's, it's the 2000s, right? Like this was, this was the younger Mark that didn't have any kind of, you know, inflammation or, or joint mm-hmm. problems. You know, this was the Mark that just sat down and loved movies for movies. Mm-hmm. And other people had said that this movie was either boring, you know, unrealistic, forgettable. Um, huh. Other folks said that it was action lacked instead of action packed. Um, and others said it was overstuffed. So I honestly don't quite understand how it can be that many things to so many different people but be mutually adored by you know you myself my brother mm-hmm. and i bonded over this movie and it's it's really strange because the original gone in 60 seconds i've only seen a handful of times mm-hmm. you know, and and this movie did borrow you know certain elements of the original oh yeah mm-hmm. it did uh, it did a few a few homages to the uh, to the original movie yeah, instead of 48 cars, it's 50, you know. 50. We, you a round we, number is a little more fun. I guess they're both round numbers, but um, yeah. a zero the at the end, better than an eight. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. you get up the stakes a little bit, you know. Oh, yeah, completely. You spend more money on it, you got to have more cars. Yeah. Um, you know, we still obviously have one of the cars having heroin in it when they steal it, you know. Yep. Um, Which, yeah, they, they do re- repeat that scene very well. Um, and again, like, I, I find the newer one more entertaining with the, uh, the heroin car. Um, most because I think the heroin car is actually very close to my to my first car that I had. Um, I think it's I think it's a like a GM um, G body car uh, that they use for that. Oh man! I think yeah, I'm, I'm actually not positive. I'm not 100 percent sure what car. No, no, it's not because it's a Cadillac Eldorado is what they use, and I don't think that's a G body. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, mm, it's okay. The, the the whole part of that joke, and we don't want to give everything away here but this one's a pretty you know this is a pretty simple joke it's just the fact that you know somebody wanted to contribute to the job who's done nothing so far steals one car and guess what it's got a trunk full of heroin yep and he never never paused to think as why a car in that part of town would have its doors unlocked (laughs) because no one's stupid enough to boost a car in that part of town freb go back to ordering pizzas (laughs) people gotta eat right (laughs) yeah yeah I will say um, it's it's definitely kind of turning that whole reboot business on their head, mm-hmm. right? Like we've seen a lot of reboots in our time. You know, we obviously yep. just talked about the the Ghostbusters connection on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the, like things like Total Recall. You know, there's there's usually some kind of take that you get in the new reboot that just doesn't quite feel like it needs to be there. Yeah, and and in this one, you know, I I didn't ever get the feeling that 
it even really felt like a reboot. No, I mean, no, it's, it's, I think it's because again, like the callbacks to the original, um, like people who watch the original movie will see like a few things here and there that, that feel familiar, but like they do so much more with this story. Um, and I must, I think it's a shorter movie too, compared to the original one. Um, I think they do more with this story. Let's see what the runtime is an hour 58 versus the old one, which I feel like the car chase alone was almost an hour and 15 minutes. I'm kidding. There's a 40 minute car chase in the original movie at the end of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think they do a lot more in this one because in the original movie, it's literally um, you've got a newcomer coming into um, the main characters, basically car stealing business. They go over how they how they steal cars, how they swap out VIN numbers with ones that have been totaled. Uh, and then they sell off the uh, the ones that were stolen to uh, uh, people who are just willing to buy the cars for a, for a higher price. Uh, and that's how they make their money. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's this South American buyer that wants these 48 cars. So they have like a week to steal these 48 cars. And that's basically the movie. Um, and like a lot of things in the seventies, like pacing was different. So the point where like, I felt like I was actually, I don't know, kind of bored throughout most of the original gone 60 seconds. There are definitely some character things that were fun. Uh, a few car chases that were great. Looking at the old cars is also really cool too. So that's always fun. But when you look at the involvement that is in the newer Gone in 60 Seconds, you have this great um, underpinning reason as to why the cars have to be stolen other than like, we're just getting paid to do this job. Yeah. Um, you have the, uh, the main character, Nicolas Cage's brother, uh, basically fumbled and botched this job before. So Nicolas Cage is coming in to make up for his little brother's mistakes. And they get to the point where, all right, we've got this much time left to steal the cars. We're going to use all this time to basically get ready to shop around for the cars. And we're going to steal them all in one night. To your point about the, the reasoning for stealing the cars. Okay. Here, here's a, a connection that I wanted to make sure that that people knew about because it's kind of, mm. it's kind of a cute one. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Will Patton who plays Atlee Jackson, you know, he's, he's the guy that has been working with Nick Cage's character, uh, Memphis mm. Reigns in the past. And he's kind of the connection to the underworld, you know, all of the, the dark ponies in South Beach, you know, they, <laughs> they all know this guy, they know Atlee Jackson, mm -hmm. he's kind of, he's one of the old horses, right? Yep. Well, when Atlee Jackson says that uh, Kip Reigns, so uh, Giovanni Ribisi uh, played him and, and he's mm -hmm. the younger brother. So when he says that Kip took a job and he fumbled it, I always cracked up at that because Will Patton also is in another Jerry Brockheimer produced film. Remember the Titans, which, if you remember, he played, you know, a, a, the head coach for the high school that Denzel Washington ends up taking over for as head coach, right? Yeah. So I just find it funny that Will Patton was in two different Brockheimer films and then just happens to be in a football film <laughs> and says fumbled it in this one. Mm -hmm. Just one of those fun little Brockheimer connections. It's instead of the, <laughs> the the degrees of Kevin Bacon, we should really be doing the degrees of Jerry Brockheimer at this point. But mm -hmm. or it's like some sort of our big bizarre uh, bizarre like Bruckheimer shared universe. Is it's his attempt at <laughs> this was the Marvel, this was the MCU before the MCU was a thing. Was Bruckheimer just connecting his movies with all these small little things? The BCU, the Bruckheimer Cinematic Universe. <laughs> and and you know what? We could piggyback off of Pirates of the Caribbean as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's so much we could play with here but yeah 
but yeah, sorry, sorry to distract for a moment, but that was one of those things where you're looking at it, you're like, you just can't help but notice that breadcrumb led somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even he, uh, his character, Atlee Jackson, I think that's the only reused name from the original movie. It's kind of like a, another, like, just a little nod they did to the original one. Um, so, like, again, like, so I guess those nods um, we talked about uh, a little bit was, of course, the scene where you've got the, uh, the Cadillac filled with the... Uh, filled with drugs um, and the, the police are basically right there with a stolen car. Um, mm-hmm. You've got Atlee Jackson, who's reused uh, as a reused name. The character is significantly different in the original movie than it is um, in this one. Yeah. Um, the lead car being a Mustang called Eleanor, um, also a reused thing. However, Eleanor in the first movie, um, the reason why it was supposed to be sought after is for a little car history for all y'all. Um, is that it's a 1974 Ford Mustang Mach 1, which looking back on them, like they're pretty big boats. Like they are <laughs> awfully huge cars. Like the Mustang had definitely let itself go in its last three years with the title of Mustang in the 70s. Um, and then in uh, 74, we get the oil crisis and all the muscle cars scale down. Um, they don't all physically scale down, but power goes down dramatically in all of them. Uh, and this is, of course, when Lee Iacocca, the man who had made the Mustang, redesigned it from the big muscle car body. And he's like, no, we're going to bring it back to its roots and have it go back to a smaller car. And he makes the Mustang, too, which everyone didn't immediately hate, believe it or not, because I think to this day, that's still one of the best selling Mustangs ever was the Mustang, too, when it came out. Um, as much as people like to like really hate on it, Ford now comes out and says that basically that was the right car for the right time, even though it had zero power. Um, you had, uh, you could literally get like a Cobra performance Mustang that had like a probably like 60 horsepower four cylinder engine. And it was just laughable, but that Mm -hmm. was the reason though, why this car was so sought after And they specifically say, this is the last of the Mustangs, uh, which is why they want it in that movie. And then that's now the hero car that goes into the 40 minute chase. Whereas this car, they don't really explain. They, they change that. It's no longer the last of the Mustangs is the reason why they, they actually like kind of give this spirituality to the car where oh, yeah. it's relationship with Nicholas Kane's uh, Nicholas Cage's character, Memphis reigns uh, is that he like, kind of like always has something go wrong when he tries to steal this one specific car. And they have a scene where they describe when they first see Eleanor at the, uh, the Long Beach International Towers, which is also a callback to the original movie because that's where that Eleanor is stashed too. Um, like he drives it off the Long Beach Pier. He uh, has an engine blow out. Like just everything goes wrong when he tries to steal that car. Um, mm. And that's, that's what they use this time to kind of bring up the drama of why like this car means so much as opposed to it's the last of its kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the the whole mystical side of it is funny because since we've got these, these multi-generational levels of of folks involved in stealing Mm -hmm. these cars, because even though Kip and Memphis don't really seem that old, right? I mean, they don't seem like they're that far apart, No, but, but you do have entirely different teams that comprise who tried to boost the cars of old and who's boosting the cars of now. Right. And so, um, so it's just kind of funny how the the younger generation, you know, they they all know about the story and they, they all know about why Eleanor's never been captured, mm-hmm. you know. So um I Almost always thought that was them. fun. Almost all because Almost. of course 
our man Freb did not know about it. He didn't even know what a unicorn was for some reason. That had to be explained to him. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. Freb gets beaten up on a lot in this film. If you guys don't know who Freb is, um, Freb is, is one of the guys that just has absolutely nothing to do with any of the process in stealing cars. Um, yep. They At one point, they go over like basically all the skill sets of all the different, um, the newer generation of people, um, the newer generation of, of, uh, of the boosters. And they go through everyone and they get to Freb and there's like, well, Freb orders pizzas like it's no one's business. <laughs> yeah. And that, well, that's his ability. And they don't even call him Freb at first, right? Like he gets, he gets dissed before they even say his name. Oh yeah. You know, so Donnie looks at him, uh, Donnie Astricky, who's, uh, you know, obviously one of the original crew. He mm -hmm. calls him Gilligan. <laughs> who's gilgan here and what does he do <laughs> yeah so kai mcbride who plays donnie as tricky yeah he goes so yeah so so who is gilligan what does he do it's like well, gilligan is freb. actually freb yeah. and freb is not that much better of a of a name either but no it really isn't like yeah. and if and especially if like like that's his given name like his parents named him freb yeah, yeah. that sucks man i almost like if you're bouncing gilligan and freb between each other it's really hard to pick which one's worse. Yeah, a name like Freb has to be in a family tree. That doesn't just no. come up in the most popular names mm -hmm. of the year. Yeah. <laughs> and really, when you look at the newer generation of boosters, while Freb appears to be the most useless on paper, I argue Toby is like the dumbest one out of all of them. He was like the mm -hmm. one weak part for me in this movie. Yeah, because he talks about you know being all all tech oriented. He can hack mm -hmm. anything. He can do anything he wants. Yeah. Um, Which it's the early two thousands. You need a hacker in your movie. Well, it's true. Yeah. yeah. You just need it. If you have an action movie, someone's hacking something and it's always, always the mainframe that gets hacked. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And I actually, this is um, something I was going to bring up earlier, but one of the things about the cast of this, I mean, I know obviously we talked about Toby and Freb and mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're supporting people, but the the cast of this movie is one of the reasons why I don't think it deserves nearly as much. Uh, I, I just just as much vitriol that you see online for it. Like oh, there's yeah. mm -hmm. there's so many people that didn't like this movie, but um, you know we've we've talked about Nicolas Cage, who I mean once again we we know that this guy uh, deserves all the praise that he gets, and no one can tell me differently. No, no, um, no. I love Nicolas Cage. Like there's definitely. Like no rhyme or reason to like the amount that I really, really enjoy Nicolas Cage and everything that he does. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is, and this is like peak mm -hmm. Nick Cage as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is Nick Cage's best. Um, we've got Giovanni Ribisi, as we mentioned. Mm -hmm. We've got, you know, Robert Duvall, Angelina Jolie. Uh, we've got an emerging Vinnie Jones. Mm -hmm. uh, also we, an emerging uh, Timothy Oliphant in this movie as well. Yes. One of, yes. This mm -hmm. is one of Timothy Oliphant's early movies. Um, you know, Will Patton was also like an early 2000s, just uh, uh, he was like the cornerstone of several films. I mean, you saw him in more films than you probably remember. Um, and uh, so I'm mean, getting if you if you really need that spelled out like that, if you need one there. If you've watched the 2000s films and you somehow missed Armageddon, like I don't know what you were doing in that yeah. time period. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't. I mean, seriously, I, I I know what I was doing, and it was watching Armageddon. That's the only thing I was up to. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, and that's just that's that's just the most of the main cast, right? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you had the big bad played by Christopher Eccleston, uh, yes. the Lance Doctor himself, who ah, uh, great job in both both roles as as Doctor Whom 
and uh, Raymond Kalitri in this one. Yeah, is Raymond Kalitri, you know, I, that's where I've actually read some of these reviews of people saying that that's where it felt unbelievable. And with a, I thought with a British villain, that's like half of our movies. I, well, I don't know. I, I mean, this isn't me. Once again, this isn't me. I, I'm just I'm just showing you what I've seen. But but he actually, even though some of the dialogue was, you know, it, it felt like standard action movie. It felt kind of corny in the moment. But mm-hmm. he still is. He he delivers real evil to me. Yeah, as Raymond Kalitri. feels believable. But I do. Yeah, he has a bizarre obsession with wood. Don't get that. That maybe maybe that's the unbelievable part. Like. He, it's warm, it can, it's natural, which even then, I don't know. I guess it's not, that's not far and removed from a villain wanting to return things to a simpler time, uh, which is usually why they want to destroy everything. But in this case, he just has to get, um, get cars to people in South America. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. once again, man, it's, it's, this is the stuff I didn't even know about what people didn't like about this movie. You know, it, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, but but ultimately, I, I thought he delivered. I mean, I've never really seen Eccleston in a role where I didn't appreciate, you know, his depiction. Mm-hmm. And and unfortunately for him, this we won't go too far into this, but you know, he he's one of those people that has really been choosy with his roles, right? Like he he did pick some early two thousands movies where he kind of came across the pond, and you know, there was some fanfare. But um, but for him to not really you know, want to live in the mainstream anymore. Uh, it's, it's kind of a shame because every time I've seen him, I've liked him, whether it was mm-hmm. Dr. Who or uh, he was even great. And, and uh, 28 days later, you know, he played a, uh, an army officer in that and he, and he was solid there. So yeah. it's just kind of a shame, but yeah, no, he was, he was in that, uh, the rise of Cobra, which he was Destro also. He did <laughs> of the few things I liked about that movie. He was one of them. Um, and uh, Thor dark world, which, he did a yeah. great job as the uh, the antagonist in Thor: Dark World. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I usually have not seen him in a film where I question, you know, the prep he did for it. Mm-hmm. And um, but rounding out the cast here, there's one person that I want to bring up that can be easily missed. Who do you think that might be in Gone in sixty seconds? Is it um, James Duvall with no relation to Robert Duvall? Because James <laughs> no. Duvall is Freb, since we've been talking about him quite a bit already. It's not him, believe no. it or not. And, is it Delory uh, Deroy Lindo? No, it's it's Michael oh. Pena who played okay. Luis in the uh, Ant Man series. Oh yeah, he's um he has one scene in this movie, which yeah is also involving Freb it because involves, Freb shows yeah. up. Involves Freb. Yeah, yeah. I forgot my. Uh, I don't know how I forgot about Michael Pena <laughs> being there. Yeah, yeah, he's just some street tough that shows up, you know, turf disputes, but he's there, and and uh, yeah, I, I I always like earmarked that for some reason, you know, mm-hmm. I I don't know why, and then as soon as I saw Ant Man, I'm like, hey, dude's in Gone in sixty seconds, you know. <laughs> if anything, it just tells you how enduring Michael Pena's career has been, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is over twenty years ago, and he's still relevant, and uh, it just just tells you how active he's been, but. Um, but yeah, yeah, obviously Robert Duvall is he, I mean, he makes this movie, uh, his, his presence in the film is fantastic, you know, cause, um, he's another one of those people that I've never had a problem with any role he's played oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. he brings, he brings kind of like a, a warmth and a, uh, almost like a, a level of description you don't need for any relationship he has with the characters in this, mm-hmm. just the way he, he behaves around them. Oh you know? yeah. 
very, very fatherly. And he does um, kind of like this weird, like job of like being the bridge between like the, uh, the old generation of, of uh, boosters versus the new generation of boosters uh, mm-hmm. where he will, whenever ideas come up, he will kind of like put his effort into it to either like, whenever I guess, whenever ideas come up that maybe has, have like a tension flowing between the two groups, he kind of puts himself in the middle uh, to try yeah. and reduce that tension. Yeah. Well, he's like an operations manager, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they have him controlling the warboard with, with all the cars and everything on it. Um, you know, I like to think that the whole naming system came from him anyway. Right? Oh, probably. It, yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen it, they name all the cars after girls' names because if you name them after girls and you're saying um, you're going to pick up a girl, then anyone who's listening in is, is none the wiser to what you're actually doing. But but if you're picking up a guy, I mean, I, I still think that's just as acceptable. I think you could do that. Yeah. Picking yeah, up, uh, picking up Tony. Uh, everyone's fine with you picking up Tony. Maybe, yeah. but be careful how you pronounce Tony. They may assume it's a gang related thing then because there's always a Tony in every gang. Yeah. But what if you're just like a prolific stage actor and you're going to pick up your Tony? Oh, that's different. I didn't think about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, they wouldn't even know what they're listening to anymore on that. Yeah. They're completely you know? gone, especially if you break out into song about that Tony. <laughs> he'll tune right out <laughs> you know uh you mentioned uh delroy lindo as well mm-hmm. and i i absolutely love delroy lindo in this movie um another just solid actor that that somehow ended up in this um and he's actually from the uk believe it or not really yeah yeah see that's what's great i think it, how many uk actors can really nail an american accent and then how many americans just really mess up a uk accent so yeah, good on good on uh, Mr. Lindo there. Had no clue he's from the UK. Yeah, yeah, dude's from the UK. I mean, and mm-hmm. and once again, I can't say this enough. He's another one of those actors that you just you never really see him in a bad role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember he was uh, actually also in Get Shorty. If you remember the the nineteen ninety five you know comedy about oh of you course know, mm-hmm. yeah male strippers or wait no 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 not male strippers. I'm thinking of uh, no you're totally thinking of movie. A- yeah, uh, Get Shorty's a totally different film mm-hmm. uh, with uh, yeah John Travolta, Gene Hackman, uh, Danny DeVito. Um, totally different, like gangster comedy. But mm-hmm. once again, solid film. Oh yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he. It's just a, a the level of talent in this to me just says that the reviews can't make sense. They just can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may be me trying to shoulder you know the 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 brunt of you know millions of other folks' opinions here, but the the actors we've mentioned the performances they give in this mm-hmm. i mean i i just don't quite get how no and i think part. i think the movie's also brilliantly paced like there's no there's no point where i feel like the film lags you have this um you get the status quo nicely put in the uh um the beginning of the movie quickly introduces you into the movie's main problem and then you got plenty of rising action you get the climax towards the end of the movie um where they're actually going out and they're stealing the cars um, and then you resolve it and you have a new status quo at the end. And all of it, I think for what the film is trying to do is very believable. I mean, I, yeah, it does sound kind of ridiculous. Like you, they're actually like stealing 50 cars in a California city in one night. Um, Cause I mean, you think about it, like, I just think like when I tell someone I'm going to be ready to like do something, I'm going to leave my house by a certain time. I think, yeah, I just have to like get my keys, do a little packing, put the dog away. I'll be fine. 30 minutes later to do all these simple tasks, I've finally left. 
And this is, we're somehow like going places, stealing cars, bringing them to this pier and then leaving and going to steal more cars. That is far-fetched, but it also adds a level of excitement to it, which I, which is the purpose of that whole part. Because when you go to a movie, like you have to suspend belief for the most part. This isn't a documentary. Um, so when you add this whole like, we're going to steal 50 cars in one night because that way the, it'll be harder for the police to be on to what we're doing as opposed to playing shadow games and spreading it out over a few days. Um, it's giving us a higher chance for success. And that that's the point of the whole thing. No, of course it's, it, of course it's impossible, but it adds stakes to the movie that make it kind of like more intense. Well, we both know that if you play shadow games, the heat is on to you by the second night. So that's why exactly. you, you just got to do it all at once. But mm-hmm. But that, that's exactly what I would like to throw back at people that are, are kind of coming at this movie sideways is that if you don't live in like the Los Angeles area, the greater mm-hmm. LA area, just imagine how believable it would be for 50 cars to be stolen in Los Angeles. I mean, it, to me, it, that seems like probably the most plausible thing happening in the movie mm-hmm. is that there's a possibility that cars are being stolen and a lot of them. And, and that's why it makes more sense, too, even when you look at it from the detective side of this. So even the police are going, you know, no one cares about Grand Theft Auto, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's so commonplace. Yeah. That's why it's believable. So you don't yeah. even have to suspend your disbelief if you're, if you're trying to figure out why this should work or how it could work. And you've got, you know, 10 different people that are all working together to steal 50 cars. I mean, it, over the course of a night, I mean, yeah, they're organized. It can make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do love, like, when you're looking at math, I use, I think I remember, like, making a, like, a math word problem for this at one point in time in my academic career, where I was, I mean, it was a simple problem where I think that they say some of the movie, it's like, when, when Memphis Reigns left um, the Long Beach area, it was, like, something like 65% of all, um, like, GTA, <laughs> like, numbers just went down. Yes. so it's something just ridiculous so i think like i did something where like i looked up like um modern statistics of like how many cars are stolen in that area like mm-hmm. modern day and i'm like and if that's gone down since memphis Reigns has left how many cars would be stolen on average in a year <laughs> when he was there yeah. um and it, it would be a ridiculous number by the way it was it was just insane um but again like when you look up like the numbers for it like at least when i did i think i did that in high school and it was like, yeah, actually, a lot of cars get stolen <laughs> in in California a year. I mean, that's usually nothing exciting. Like in the movie, I think what the most commonly stolen car, like when we were in high school, was like a Honda Accord. Which I'm pretty sure is probably still the case even today. I mean, oh, probably. And that's not because people really, really want the Honda Accord to be stolen. It's just because there are just a lot of Honda Accords out there. So they're more likely to get stolen. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if you're going to steal something to do another crime in, you don't want to pick the flashiest thing sitting no, on the wall. it's ridiculous. You don't go out there in yeah. a ridiculously big old Cadillac or anything, like a 50s Cadillac that's spraying like, fire out of its uh, exhaust on it, <laughs> which I, I do use something with that. No, 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 that's, uh, that's a Mercedes I'm thinking of. Uh, when uh, it's Donnie Estricky, Chai McBride's character, uh, is first alerted the fact that all the Mercedes cars are being like observed by the police. Oh yeah. And they're asking where he is and he's upset and just annoyed by this. He's like, hey, where do you think I am? I'm at the casino picking up the pit boss's lady. What do you want? Um, I'll use that with people on the phone every once in a while where they ask like where I am. Like, is having the baby right now? The... Yeah. <laughs> just having the baby? 
<laughs> oh, I gotta get this I'm crazy. This is even my car. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> like Which, like yeah. Chai yeah. McBride is just a completely unsung hero of this movie. Um, Donnie Estricky is just so much fun and personality that he adds to that to that movie. Oh, great. Oh, I love well, him. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the, the way what I love about this, uh, not just his character, but like when they introduce the old crew, mm-hmm. like they show what the old crew is up to, and it and it totally feels like what we've mentioned with sequel, you know, the the, the sequel uh, uh, treatment that happens to characters, right? Like they're always mm-hmm. worse off than they were in the first one, and and so Donnie is is literally a, a, a driver's ed instructor, and and of course <laughs> he's got a woman that just can't figure it out, and mm-hmm. he's. You know, <laughs> I remember him saying that he goes, I can't swim. I know I can't. So I keep my ass out of the pool. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, and then he, you know, she starts crying and, and then he just gets out of the car frustrated, <laughs> you know, and, and the second he gets out, she backs right into traffic. Yep. And, he's and like, you know, just, just take her on the block. Yeah. <laughs> he <laughs> just know? says that as he's leaving. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the I, I think that's another one of those elements of this movie that's, that's fantastic. And what it does really well is that it, it brings you up to speed on the history of everyone in it mm-hmm. very quickly. I mean, there, there are movies that are made by, you know, Academy Award winning directors and they have three times the amount of money thrown at them mm-hmm. and they can't achieve this. I don't know how yeah. or, or why that is, but everyone involved in this movie, um, it's very deliberate in the history that you learn. Mm-hmm. And, and so like you mentioned before how this movie, you know, how it, it goes from, from scene to scene and, and all the context it's given, like it's, it's very deliberate. It knows what it's building to. I mean, we know what it's building to. It's mm-hmm. a pretty simple concept, but, but we, we know about the fact that the Memphis being uh, such a prolific, you know, uh, booster of cars that the second he comes back into town, the police are right there waiting for him. Right. Yeah. Like immediately they know he's there. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, they know, they know he's there. And it's not uh, because Lakers got Shaquille. Yeah, probably not the reason why he's back in town. Yeah. yeah, once again, letting you know how long it's been since this movie came out. The it's Lakers just got you feel. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, and now the acting may not be the most superb in some of these scenes, but it falls apart here and there. Yeah. But it's lovable yeah. when it does. I like to point yeah. that out. Yeah, ultimately, if you're going to attack a movie for structure, I don't think this is really the movie that you do it with, um, because they do a lot of of uh, good building between Memphis and Kip. And, you know, explaining that dynamic, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Kip literally just throws it out there and says that when he left, he had no one to you know, to look up to anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why he, you know, devolved into the life of crime, even though everyone tried to keep him out of it. Um, the same thing goes with, you know, with Sway and Memphis mm-hmm. as well. So Sway, you know, Angelina Jolie, his, his uh, on and off again, girlfriend, you know, um, the tension between those those two actors as they go through their reintroduction as he comes back into town that's that's another strong sequence there yeah um, and i would i never would say like again like you know when a director or a writer has a job of introducing a cast of characters some like to produce a four hour plus movie to really flesh those characters <laughs> out and others will basically just give and then again, this is like you had what probably a good eight different characters that they're going to flesh out and give backgrounds to. Um, one of them, uh, four of them, get a montage with the older crew as they're basically going around like, okay, well, we need to get this job taken care of. 
who can we turn to? So they go through like basically their their little black books of their people they used to do business with, used to boost cars with. Mm-hmm. And for all characters, even ones who don't actually get seen on the movie, um, um, some of them have have died and some of them are <laughs> very, very busy at the moment. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, it, like and- we get to know all of them though, because they go through, they get one scene as they're answering a phone. So you get uh, Donnie, who's now teaching, um, uh, he's at a driver's ed. Um, obviously, uh, Robert Duvall, uh, Otto, he's, he's the one going through the phone book um, with, mm-hmm. uh, with Memphis Reigns. But then you get Vinnie Jones's character, Sphinx, and yeah. he's working at a morgue and he doesn't talk and he's just very intense with everything that he does. And they establish that within like basically, what, three seconds where the people answering the phone are afraid to talk to him yeah, because yeah. he never talks to anyone. And yeah. then he's having lunch, like he's on his lunch break yep. at the morgue. He takes a bite from his sandwich and puts on a cadaver and then picks up the phone. Yeah. 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 And, and, I, and that's what I love too, is that one of his coworkers specifically says, the guy never talks. How is he going to take a phone call? <laughs> and then you hear Nicholas Cage on the phone and he goes, he goes, uh, Sphinx, is it you? Press the button if it's you. And then yep. he presses the button. And <laughs> I so mean, yeah, again, they do a wonderful job with that. And then when it's time to introduce the new cast of characters, it's when they meet each other and they just go over like, hey, this is this is Tumblr. He can drive anything with wheels and some things without. And they just go over like what they can all do. Um, yeah. And again, yeah. like, OK, like that's all you need to know about them. Perfect. We know what we know. Everyone's skill sets for the new crew. Yeah. We knew what now all the old crew. We just know that they used to boost cars and we we've seen what they've been doing since then. And they're all the ones that are willing to come back are willing to come back. Um, yeah. I and mean, like it, they do yeah. this and you get like a good, you know, you get good background in all the characters in a matter of minutes, as opposed to, you know, several hours later, we can finally continue with the plot. Yeah. If anything, that's, that's like one of the best things this movie does that a lot of others just can't seem to get right. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're caught up to speed on, on all of these people. Um, and and they're all likable i mean yeah. for, for the exception of toby you just oh, you know, toby you shouldn't be jumping into the back of the car anyway they, no you don't you know, it doesn't it, it, toby it doesn't matter if it's rent a cop he can yeah. still pull you over he still has a gun and you're yeah. an idiot yeah i mean i don't know of any rent a cops that are you know gonna actively join into a high-speed chase but hey toby Probably whatever not. you yeah. know whatever <laughs> mm-hmm. um but but that's that's one thing too that you've brought up a couple of times is we see the old crew and the new crew mm-hmm. and and then we see them join forces where they're literally pairing up with each other as they go out. And and uh, what was really cool is that you see them play the, the, like these car games, right? When they're out and they're talking through the, the oh, walkie-talkies yep. and everything. Mm-hmm. And and they're all sharing these old games they used to play, you know, uh, talking about famous, you know, uh, vehicles and movies and TV shows and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. It's so fun. Like they uh, what they give you the actor and they give you like the series of the movie and you have to say the car they drove in it. It's oh, yeah, fun yeah. game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and the old crew and the new crew, they're all participating in it. And mm-hmm. it, it's just one of those things that it, it clearly tells you um, that these, these folks, even though they haven't seen each other in a long time mm-hmm. or ever really or, like, or ever. never met yeah. before this. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, but they're, but they're picking up just like an old group of high school friends would. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's kind of what I appreciated a ton was just seeing, you know, that kind of interactions between characters, because, you know, sometimes you, you have to work with people for quite a long time before you can have that kind of rapport. And so 
seeing them do that it, it i mean it seemed effortless from what i watched but you know it, it was um one of those small in between the lines things that i just always paid attention to watching this movie and i think that's i mean this is something that um just one of many things the movie does well is introducing this very diverse very different cast of characters and having them all come together over this common cause which turns out to being to save one character's life um and then you also get on top of like their small backstories because we know enough about their characters and they are peripheral characters we can now focus a lot on what's been going on with um the reigns brothers so you you understand why it is memphis left you understand why he had to leave um and we do see some strain on those two working with each other throughout the movie until Kip actually has all this explained to him. And you understand basically why um, Memphis never explained anything to him. And when he left. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, cause he, cause he, Memphis thought the best thing he could do for him was to leave. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately it didn't end up being that way. No. Right? And, and he was yeah. told by their mother, like, Hey, you need to go because I don't want the younger, I don't want Kip turning out like you and this career. Also, I think, Oh, their dad didn't boost cars, did he? I'm trying to remember. No, 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 they're, no, 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 because his, their his dad, dad had a grocery ran, store. No, I, I'm pretty sure the dad actually ran uh, an auto shop of his oh, own. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, it was an auto yeah. shop or a dealership. Yep. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was. A, there's at least an auto shop and possibly mm-hmm. a dealership attached. And and so when he died, the whole family just you know just this this vacuum formed, mm-hmm. and and all of a sudden Memphis is stealing cars and all that. And and even though the the director's cut of this movie doesn't add a whole lot. Um, you and I talked about this a little bit ago. The director's cut of this movie only adds, I think, something about 15 extra minutes of footage. Mm-hmm. And, and the majority of it is just for the car scenes, uh, the, yeah. or the car chase. <laughs> I think, <laughs> Which is worth it in that by itself. <laughs> well, yeah, you would say it's mm-hmm. worth it, but there's one part of it that the only difference is that they show the pedals of the car from a different angle. Like that's, that's literally all you get in the <laughs> you know, sequence of this. But It was a sexy angle though. Totally it was sexy. it sexier was. angle, but there I, yeah. wasn't time for it. Yeah, the sun hit the petals just right in that. And I, <laughs> yeah, I started to lick the top lip a little bit, but the, <laughs> but, but the director's cut though, um, it actually redoes the sequence in the beginning where Memphis first comes back to town, and you see just how much of a wreck that Kip is. You know, mm-hmm. he he's cooking what looks like eggs, but they're, you know, they're discolored, and I, I think they're burnt and definitely drops. Burnt. Yeah, he drops that entire shaker of salt on it, you know. <laughs> um, and and in the uh, in the extended edition, they actually go a little bit more into that. They actually kind of skip that whole sequence, mm-hmm. and it's really just analyzing the discussion between these brothers and what's happened, and mm-hmm. you know why there's some angst there, and and Kip really just just lays in to Memphis, and mm-hmm. so when you see that discussion later on, right? Like, like Memphis totally just plays the part of older brother in that conversation. And it's, it's just like when you were a kid at the store and you pissed off your parents and they say, we'll talk about this when we get home. Um, it was one of those moments where, mm-hmm. where, you know, Memphis is like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm just going to let you vent, but later on, you're really going to know what the truth is. And so, so in the extended edition, it makes a little more sense when they get to that point where he talks about why he boosted cars, why he loved doing it, and why he gave it up because he loves his brother that much. Yeah. Um, and so that once again, this is why the people who reviewed this movie and just bombed it, I don't think 
you ever saw that extended edition, but all of the frame or all of the, the building blocks for a, a really solid movie are here. Mm-hmm. No. And I just, even with that scene in itself, one thing that I, I really like uh, what um, the director, maybe why they chose the original scene is because um, it, like you said it was much more condensed and they focused more on how Kip's life is basically it's spiraled out of control. And they tried showing it in this one little scene. Granted, the fact that it's already been established his life is out of control because I think just two scenes before this, he was chained to the steering wheel of like an 83 Firebird that was in a car compactor. Um, and he was, he was about to die. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, in this scene where he's making breakfast very, very poorly, uh, as you can tell, because he dumped the whole thing of salt in on whatever it is that he was cooking. Um, at one point, he's talking about how like, you know, like... Um, I've got like, everything's fine now. Thanks for doing the one thing, but I've got everything under control. And as soon as he says that, whatever he was cooking starts on fire. It's just a nice little way of showing that he is not in control of the situation Mm -hmm. at all. (laughs) Um, And then, so they, like when the, when they, I think maybe the reason why they, they may have cut out um, the fuller part of this from the extended edition is because later on in the movie, when there's a part where they're, I think they're on the porch uh, of Kip's house and uh, they have a discussion again over a little bit about like, hey, you left and all this happened and you're back now and you think everything's great. But like, you know, my life is screwed up because you left. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he really lays it into him, mm-hmm. you know, like and and that's yeah, that's that's what that's what's really good about this, though. That's where um, that's where I think there's there's a good amount of exchange there where another action movie probably wouldn't even care about this stuff mm-hmm. right um and and as far as kip goes you know you mentioned how he said he had everything under control um that's why i think if you were a fan of the the director's cut and and uh, and you weren't a fan of the regular edition or whatever one of the reasons why you know kip does not have it under control is because of a deleted scene that they had where in the very beginning when they steal the first car and oh yeah the porsche they, 911 yeah, yeah, he's in the Porsche, he's at the stoplight, and he's trying to, you know, uh, race off the line with the other guy there. In a stolen car, very smart. Yeah, yeah, he <laughs> he says some some pretty colorful things to to this guy's girlfriend in the mm-hmm. passenger seat, and and this is after he just used a brick to break into this dealership, right? Which, and, last I checked, is not a tool. It's a damn brick. <laughs> it's not a tool. Yeah, it might as well call the prison and make reservations at that point. And and, and so in this in this scene that only made it into the director's cut, um, when you when you just watch how how poorly Kip is running everything, mm-hmm. um, I think it it may be the reason why it is a director's cut is because it's so blatantly obvious that Kip has done everything wrong that he possibly could, um, that it does kind of render the theatrical edition, you know, maybe not as impactful, right? Because yeah. when you start to throw all these things in, um, it, it does lessen the impact of some of those other scenes that we've, we've talked about here a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would actually say if you're going to watch this movie, like don't actually watch the director's cut. No, Just, watch the theatrical. This is, this yeah. is a good one there. And what also I love um, about this movie is uh, when you have the Memphis character who left and it seems like mo- a heart, like I would say his leaving definitely took the biggest effect on Kip. And that's what the movie does focus. However, it does ripple out to his friends that he had when he was younger. And you see that with Sway. 
Um, yeah. Which is really good. And why that relationship is strained. It's more than just like, Hey, we used to go out and now we don't. And things are weird. Um, it's, they, they go into a scene where they talk a lot more about how, um, like Memphis is like, you know what? I went straight. Um, I was trying to help you do the same. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, I just, we were different parts of our life. And well, you're all, I'm going to go straight and have, a regular life at this point. I just wasn't ready for it yet. I was yeah. too caught up in the excitement and the action of, of what we used to do. And I just couldn't walk away yet. And then now you see her, she's walked away from it. Um, she has to cut one conversation short because she has to go to work, despite the fact that she's already at work yeah. because you have to work twice as hard when it's honest. Oh yeah. Um, so that's where you see, her life pick up when you where you start with her life when he when he's going around trying to get the old crew together um and she's not on board uh, and she makes it very clear that uh your best intentions weren't the best for me at the time um and i'm probably not going to do this and then she shows up and basically says she's doing it um to save his little brother's life uh kip but yeah again like you see like his actions had weight to them before we even saw the movie and they're not, and it's not like an unrealistic weight at all. No, no. And if anything, what I think the dynamic here is interesting is it's almost like uh, a Sherlock Holmes and Watson mm-hmm. situation for most of these other guys that had the former crime life that are now on the straight and narrow. Because especially for a guy like like Donnie Astricky, you know, as soon as he mentions that, you know, we, we've got a job that we're going to put together, you know, he's he's in a better mood. You know, he oh, he's completely. He's like, oh, he, yes, thank you. I can stop teaching driver's ed. Yeah, yeah. That that's that's the first thing I thought of was the mm-hmm. the whole you know Holmes and Watson thing. It's like just just when Watson thinks he's out, you know, Holmes pulls him back in, mm-hmm. and 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 so it, it's funny to see how these people behave. You know, uh, once that happens, and um, one thing that's totally a curveball here that has nothing to do with what we talked about is just the fact that Master P is in this movie. Do you remember Master P from the? Oh, oh yeah, I remember late... Master P. He's a he is a rival in this movie. He's a rival um, car booster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and which once again, this is context that other action movies don't even really care to to bring up a lot of times, right? <laughs> like the, throughout this entire movie, the 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 Reigns brothers are being chased by Master P's posse, right? Because because <laughs> you know he he's used to getting the orders for stolen cars mm-hmm. now because of the Reigns not being involved, and and so now he's coming after them and that's the kind of stuff that I, you just don't see in other action films. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's like, it, it led to some comedy later on. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the most quotable move or moments in this movie are because of master P. Um, <laughs> but, but it, it, once again, it's, it's the context and it's how quickly we get it and how consistently we get it. And to me, it just means that when, when this movie was made, um, you know, it's not like it was just bouncing around. No, I mean, no. And again, like, like you said, like we know that because of Memphis leaving, it opens this power vacuum for stealing cars. And that's where like the master P character is able to kind of rise. And now he doesn't like that business is getting taken away from him again. And mm-hmm. even though like this, you can think of it as like, a, this is basically a side plot, but unlike a lot of movies, like unlike a lot of movies, like the side plots logical. And we see a, we see closure to that side plot fairly quickly. Uh, so I, if this was a reason that someone wanted to argue why this was like overstuffed with things is that you've got this main plot 
and you've got like a subplot with the brothers, a subplot with uh, Angelina Jolie, and now you've got this subplot with the um, the other car thief. All of them like fit well together. I don't think like if if you took the subplot of like Master P out, would it would it like would the movie suffer from it? It wouldn't suffer. I I don't think it would. But at the same time, like those the scenes with Master P are both good. They establish um uh skills of like basically skill sets of all the characters. Uh the first time we 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 see Master P is when Sphinx also like makes his like he actually joins uh yeah. instead of like you know being on the other end of the phone not talking. Um so you see that he's like this big like tough guy not to be mentioned with and we get the the quintessential Vinnie Jones ball grab, which if you are familiar <laughs> with his English football career, yeah. that's a real thing. Like he was, I think he still holds the record for the fastest ejection in a game because oh, yeah. like basically as soon as the ball like kicked off, he just reached down and grabbed some dude by the testicles and squeezed and twisted a bit and he was kicked out. So that was yeah. a fun little reference to his own career, like his own career before acting. Um, yeah. So but- Ramping up his yeah. badassery mm-hmm. in that scene, though, before he even minds the stepchildren, he <laughs> literally makes the biggest Molotov cocktail of all time where he puts that dirty rag in the gas mm-hmm. tank of his car, a masterpiece car. Oh, yeah. And, and just lights that thing up like the 4th of July. And so, you know, his his entrance is just it, it's absolutely what you would think a guy who doesn't mm-hmm. say many words would be capable of. Right. Yep. And again, yeah. that, that's perfect, though, because he doesn't talk. So his actions are far more grandiose than him saying anything. Oh, Until, of course, yes. eventually at the very end, he says something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which we won't we won't rob anybody of. Mm-hmm. You know, if you haven't seen Gone in the 60 Seconds before, and maybe if this is the thing that gets you to finally do it, um, th- there are a lot of these fun, you know, fun little moments within the mm-hmm. film that are peppered throughout. Um, you know, some of it is as simple as a DMX reference, which um, <laughs> <laughs> is, a, is a great moment in the film. Oh, yes. Um, but other than that, I mean, there's there's a lot of these these small little fun scenes. Mm-hmm. We mentioned the, the the Michael Pena scene as well, which yeah. um, you know I, I don't want to don't want to rob that scene, but mm-hmm. you know it's it's another one of those fun little historical things that this group has dealt with with a dog who likes to eat license plates. <laughs> and and, and yeah. going back just one second, DMX, if you grew up the same time we did. You know that man provided you basically the soundtrack through high school and a good chunk of your college time. So just for DMX alone, if you haven't seen this movie, you need to go back and watch this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. If you have any, if you're a fan of his catalog in any capacity, <laughs> give give this one a shot. And and I think that's really what the the big point of this this conversation was. It was mm-hmm. to is to illuminate some of the things about this film that say give it a chance because if you just read the reviews on this you would probably just you know say well no oh, you probably turned off to it like no i don't need to watch this movie yeah i mean and clearly other people have right like they see that nick cage is in it and they're like well you know nick cage has made some really questionable decisions after you know his whole bankruptcy thing and and money matters and all those problems mm-hmm. but in in i i don't i'm not even saying this in jest i mean this is literally like the golden age of of nick cage's you know action movies i mean they're they're easy to consume they're really fun mm-hmm. and and i think this was um you know outside of the national treasure stuff i think this is really one of the last great action films with him um where it still has that charm you know it, it's it doesn't have any of the the grittiness that a lot of action movies took on 
you know, just instant rated R types of movies. Yeah. You know, this was not one of those movies that relied on violence to get the job done. No, I mean, you've got you've got like your gunfights. You've got, of course, it's the movies about stealing cars. So there's going to be, of course, like there's especially the final car chase of the whole movie, like is that's what everything's building to. So, of course, there's lots of action in there, but like none of the action that's there is to the point where it becomes unbelievable. Um, Mm. There's no ridiculous headshot or. Um, I say exaggeration in the gunfights that are there either. Um, I think again, like I think it's a well put together movie. Um, especially like again, like it doesn't overdo anything. Uh, the car jump it's in, it's involved in. It. There's one fairly big car jump, um, and opposed to a lot of car jumps out there, it doesn't look like grotesquely awful or bad. Like it looks. Again, I think it looks believable. It is it is CGI, but for CGI of the time, yeah, I think it's all right. <laughs> I don't think it's bad. Two thousand CGI. Uh, I, I actually and watched this on VHS originally, mm-hmm. so still in the original VH, VHS for this. But when I saw the behind the scenes stuff for it, uh, even back then, I had to stop and look at it and go, "Is that CGI?" Yeah. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I seriously did not know. I had no clue. And so when I went back and watched it, it's like, okay, now I can clearly tell that it is. But once again, this is this is based off of the opinions of folks we've read online that said that there's mm-hmm. things that don't seem believable. You know, some of this stuff just doesn't make sense. And this car ramp and the amount of distance he has, I think it's feasible he could get that kind of jump off of it. I think he could too. And to be honest, if they gave him a shot, Nicholas Cage would have taken that. Oh, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially like um, if you obviously if you don't know this about it, like he did most of his own driving in that movie. Um, he didn't want to have a stunt person take care of that for him. Uh, and a lot of the actors who did driving in the movie, like they, they were there. Like Angela Jolie talks about how um, she did driving school for that movie. One of the things that really point, uh, I think it's a fun way she was taught to drive for the movie is the stunt guy was like, yeah, wherever you want to go, you put your hand at uh, 12 o'clock and you just point and shoot. So you just move your hand to where you want to be. And that's what the car is going to take you. Um which is also like a really great thing. I always, I have a great appreciation for actors who are willing to like kind of go out of their way to do um, scenes in movies where normally be fine. Just kind of like, you know, we're going to pass this off to a stunt man or stunt woman to take care of. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, I think again, like I think given the opportunity, Nicholas Cage totally would have jumped uh, the St. Vincent bridge uh, <laughs> if, if he was allowed to. Yeah. I mean, if I were the director and Nick Cage asks me that, you know, Hey, can I, can I make that jump? And I'd be going, you know what? It's going to give us some good footage. If you're going to do it, let's do it. And like, you know, we have 12 cars for this. Yeah. How many do we have left? <laughs> yeah. Let him take the jump. He's fine. <laughs> Maybe that's the hidden meaning here is that Nick Cage did try it five times. Wasn't successful. <laughs> he said, yeah, let's fuck it. Let's it's just like, do CGI. Oh, for we're this. down to lucky yeah. seven, Nick. We're going to have to cut you off right here. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> How much, how many more, like this was the first scene we tried filming. We're going to need these last seven (laughs) and all seven of those survived. So Joe, kind of like we talked about with the Ghostbusters soundtrack and the the original movie score Mm -hmm. gone in 60 seconds also has a pretty solid foundation as far as the, uh, the music that we're introduced to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, very different than what you, you get in Ghostbusters, where we kind of have this uh, tailored scoring to each scene. And instead, we kind of get this basically um, arrangement of 
of rock songs and pop songs. It just fit specific parts of the movie very, very well. So it was almost like um, a little more complex version of two buddies sitting around like, hey, you know what? Watching this movie, it'll be really cool to hear right now is this cars flying through the air. The Rock Wilder. It's kind of like that, but with much more purpose. And what's really funny about this is combined with the, the reviews that we saw for the movie, the rest of the world seemed to agree that at least the soundtrack was worth listening to. Mm-hmm. And what I'm actually going to specifically reference are a couple of the top billboard uh, placements here for this, this soundtrack. Okay. Now in uh, New Zealand, so New Zealand's uh, albums, which is called RMNZ, actually had this peak at number 48 back in 2000. Oh, um, all right. On, yeah, on the, on the German albums or the official top 100, it actually peaked at number 29. Ooh. And if we're going to look at the Swiss albums for mm-hmm. 2000, or otherwise known as the Schweizer Hit Parade, it ranked number 26. Wow. Now, in the U.S., uh, it actually actually managed to crack both the Billboard 200 at number 69 as well as Billboard soundtrack albums at number 25 for that year. Well, I'm sure one of those numbers, numbers is at least worth a, a nice nice giggle. But, um, no, that's pretty good. Like, when you think of, um, I guess, like, the soundtrack stuff, that's very specific. But even just, like, album sales, um, people going out and buying a soundtrack as opposed to music that's explicitly by a band one person's interested in is really really good that they hit those numbers yeah yeah i mean and and that's not to say that all of this mo- like music was original right you just mentioned mm-hmm. that there's a lot a couple of recognizable uh you know artists that are on this so i'm not going to say it's nearly as impressive as the guardians of the galaxy soundtrack right um mm-hmm. but in its own way it's very functional like you mentioned Um, And I can't think of a better way to sum it up than with the literal intro to the movie, which features uh, Flower by by Moby, Um, you know, who you might remember was pretty much all over the electronic music scene in the late 90s, early 2000s. Eminem makes fun of him because apparently nobody listens to techno, but Eminem, I listen to techno. Still listen to techno. We listen to techno from other countries, specifically German. Specifically German techno. It's catchy. It's great. It's amazing. And... Just in case um, you found yourself at a party in New York City on New Year's Eve back in like 2006, no, that wasn't Moby at the party. That was just a bald dude. <laughs> it wasn't actually him. Or if you, or if you find yourself in my basement playing video games on four different televisions, drunk out of your mind on moonshine, <laughs> German techno is also a great thing to bring to that arrangement. Oh yeah, um, but mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. Also, really great you know, to to yeah. troll your friends with when you say you're going to um, play some nice um, natural sounds as you're going to going to sleep in a hotel room that you're all sharing. Because though you find those sounds of nature really soothing and it helps you sleep, and then out of nowhere, you're just hit with German techno. It's a classic, classic Mark move, by the way. So if you find yourself staying in a hotel with this man and he says he's going to put on something soothing to fall asleep to, and don't brace yourself. Yeah. The German techno that is to come. 
yeah, y'all been warned. You, you're better <laughs> off not trusting me with that. And <laughs> but but you know, once again, music here as as a way of of helping us navigate a story. Um, the we won't want to obviously go through every single soundtrack on here or every mm-hmm. every track rather. But but once again, Flower by Moby is what really kicks off the film. And what it does is it's paired really well by essentially panning around what's either like a trophy room at the the Reigns residence or like their office in the auto shop. You know, you're you're introduced to a lot of elements, whether it's pictures of the family uh, or, you know, just trinkets that are around the room that kind of help you understand themes of the movie before you even really know them. Right. Like we've got the, you know, the Virgin Mary and then we've got this little mm-hmm. devil toy. You know, we've got pictures of the of the family when they're all together. And then we've got images when it looks like it's like post their father dying. Right. Like, yeah, like, like suddenly the dad's just not around. I think was there a funeral picture in there somewhere where everyone's like in like nice looking things that I might be just thinking of that off the top of my head because it makes sense. But that could be there. If it's not a funeral picture, I know there's at least one where it shows a young Kip. And then mm-hmm. it shows like a, maybe like an older teenager Memphis. And, and you can clearly tell that he picked up the mantle of, you know, father figure once, once their mm-hmm. dad passed away. So, you know, even though this movie got beat up by a lot of people, um, this, this arrangement paired with this little like, you know, panning sequence and everything, it's, it's once again, focusing on stuff that you typically do not get from an action movie, mm-hmm. right? Like you're getting a lot of depth and just a really quick, uh, I would say about a minute long, maybe a minute and a half. I mean, it, it feels like it's a lot quicker, but, but I mean, you get a ton of context in this sequence and the old, like the old blues sounding, like it, it sounds like a Southern song. Almost. A little bit. Yeah. Um, it's got like something you can like stomp one foot to as it's going <laughs> along when you're on a, like a nice wooden porch uh, overlooking something possibly a little swampy and Bayou-esque. And you're like, you're always, you're almost about ready to bust out the spoons, you know, mm-hmm. but, but someone just pulls you back. Like each time you're thinking about it, it's like, wait, 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 no. wait we, don't, we don't do that here. Yeah. We're not, we're not doing spoons. Not, no, not here, no. but, but save them, save them. Just save not right now. Yeah. We'll use them for uh-huh. food later, not music. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, Joe, I'm surprised it took us this long to come back to it. But one of the other songs that just, is used in almost all of the marketing material for this movie. The most iconic sequence in the, in the movie itself is obviously low rider by. Warner. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely one that's uh, has probably been made into like the most it's, it's, I don't want to say maybe not memes, but it's probably, you could say it's been used in a lot of memes for it, but basically I know I use it. There's a, there's a, an animated um, gif of this sequence where the, uh, the gangs just, kind of like nodding to low riders that's going off. And then Nicolas Cage just slowly moves both hands into the air as, as he closes his eyes, moves his head down and violently shakes his two hands. And then mentally he's ready. Let's ride. Let's do this. Um, that's right. Oh yeah. It, so, it, and the reason why that that's so perfectly paired with it too, is because it like you, we've talked about how the older generation and the new generation obviously mm-hmm. have some major differences. And they also have some things that they just kind of mutually, you know, gravitate to as well. So there's some, there's some common threads that they share, but this is one of those things that clearly is like, it's just held by the old crew. Mm -hmm. Like they, they all know about it. They've all seen it several times. It's not the first time they've done it. And it's something that clearly the, the new crew just 
there's no way they could have possibly been exposed to it. No, and then they're clearly taken back to it, taken aback by it in this scene too, because you can see a few of them like kind of just completely baffled and confused by what's going on. Like they start like quietly trying to talk to each other, but then at the same time, there's someone telling them like, no, just don't worry about it. Don't do it now. Just let it go. Just let it be. Let them do what they need to. <laughs> this is clearly yeah. working for them. Yeah. yeah. Like Robert Duvall is like sitting there specifically looking at the young crew and he's just kind of like, Hey, 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 no, this, this, this has to happen. This yep. is part of the process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, here's some more trivia that I, I just had to bring up when we started talking mm-hmm. about Lowrider. but funny story about Lowrider. It was recorded in 1974, mm-hmm. which, if you remember, is when the original movie came out, it was 1974, um, and then it was released in 1975. So, mm-hmm. um, I just thought it was it was kind of funny that um, even though it's not, I don't know if they planned it this way, but it still lines up. You know, there's a little bit of a of a connection there to the the first movie if you look hard enough. Yeah, that's very cool. Of all the little. Like I said, they, they do like a really fun job of making just enough nods to that first movie or making connections to it without it being uh, overwhelming. But yeah. another uh, scene that fits really well with uh, a song was um, uh, a song by the cult painted on my heart. And this is another one that's used a oh, lot yes. for advertising the film. And I know there's a music video, I think was made with shots from the movie mm-hmm. uh, for the music video. And the scene that it's in is you've got Memphis and Sway, who we said before are, they clearly had this relationship and it fell apart when Memphis decided to not steal cars anymore, leaves town. Sway is still kind of dealing with that in her life all these years down the road. And they've stolen one car together. And it's, I believe, a a 69 uh, Plymouth Cuda uh, that they're, they're driving into, which of course was a girl's car. Because do you remember why it was a girl's car? I only know that that's what they said. I don't remember why. Oh, it's because uh, out of the out of like basically the center console, or I think it's the dash. Sway pulls out uh, oh, lipstick. lipstick. And it's the same yes. color as the car. Yes, I do remember that now. <laughs> which was great because at first you, know, you have the whole like reaction uh, where she's like, "Oh, it had to be a girl's car," and Nicholas Cage is like, "What, what about a '69 Plymouth A Arcuda as a girl's car?" And she pulls out. Lipstick matches the color of the car. <laughs> mm-hmm. But so yeah, so so I guess if you ever hop into a car and and there's lipstick that matches the color, you know exactly what kind of person drives it. Apparently, apparently that's just what it is. Like this couldn't have been a passenger. It couldn't have been um, really anything else. It's just specifically boom, that lipstick in there matches the car. This is a girl's car. No <laughs> fans are butts about it. According to according to Sway. Um, well, yeah. Joe, so they're they're driving yeah. that car. Oh, on the way to steal another car. Um, yes. And the, they, they park uh, adjacent to the, uh, they find the car, they park uh, outside of the house. They're waiting. Uh, they're about to steal a car. The house lights come on and then they, they go back into the car and they're kind of watching this intimate scene play out between the people in the house whose lights came on and they're stuck in a small space together. And it's kind of forcing them to rethink and relive their own moments they had when they were mm-hmm. um, when they were both younger, um, so they're put right back into that. And as it's as that's going on, slowly painted on my heart is like slowly coming in. And as they talk about it, and eventually they end up, you know, they're reliving like their past um, relationship together. Uh, they're watching something hot and heavy in a house, 
So they just start, they start making out themselves. And as soon as that happens, you hear that painted in my heart, like the lyrics kick in, the music ramps up. And it just kind of really, really fits that scene very well in both the way that it was edited into it. And of course, the content on my song, the content of the song painted on my heart, which is at least, of course, uh, a relationship that is fallen apart, but one person just isn't past it yet. Uh, their face is still painted on my heart. So that was just another another really great scene of how they took uh, basically like a, a pop rock song and weaved it perfect, perfectly into what was going on in the movie. Yeah, and I'm happy you went into the context of the of the song itself because what I was actually going to mention was a little bit more behind the scenes on this this oh. specific song. Mm-hmm. Now, Cosima DeVito recorded a version of the song, which is featured on her debut album, which was just called Cosima. It was okay. released in, in Australia on, on October 11, 2004. But that's not what we're here to talk about. What we're here to talk about was the fact that we mentioned Armageddon earlier in the Will Patton connection, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Aerosmith also recorded a version for Gone in 60 Seconds, specifically for the soundtrack. Ooh. However, the version by the cult is the one that ended up being featured, right? Yeah, so okay. It's possible that we almost could have had two just major Aerosmith covers showing up in two major early 2000s films, but we just got one. Okay. Um, but yeah, we I feel a little two. robbed on that, but I'm okay with it because <laughs> I did. Li- I do like when the cult, uh, what the cult put up because I, I still have that in my Spotify playlist. It's still living there. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, Joe, it's it's a song that talks about an unforgettable love. I think we've all been there, right? Oh, absolutely. Who hasn't been there? <laughs> well, <laughs> either way, it's just it's once again it's a testament to the fact that someone who put together the soundtrack here. I mean, I think they had a fun time doing it, and. And ultimately, it translates really well. Like it, in in no way does the music that they picked for this movie date the film, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's there's so many uh, so many other early two thousands, late nineties movies where you hear the music right away, and you're like, wow, I immediately know how tapered the jeans are they're about to be wearing. You know, <laughs> does not happen here. It does not happen here. We've got really timeless music um, that's that's being used and. It's, it's just a great addition to the rest of the film. Yeah, I agree. And just every time that they place a song in there, it just works so well with what's going on. Like um, uh, the ones we mentioned were perfectly scenes, but like in just about any action movie, you get some sort of montage scene. In this case, it was, uh, I think it was Stop the Rock by Apollo 440. Yes. Um, was perfect. I think a perfect way to really kick off the fact that they're now, okay, the one night boost has begun. We have to hit the ground running and what better way to do that than, you know, stop the rock. It's, it's just, it it really just amps you up and gets you ready to go out and steal 50 cars yourself. I almost did it the very night that we watched this movie for the first time with my friends. It's like, guys, let's go out, let's steal cars, which we ultimately decided not to do because we didn't really know how to steal cars. And it's a, it's a crime. That being the bigger reason is to not do it. Well, you know, that, that stop the rock song, you know, it's, it's the perfect like LFG song. And for those of you who don't know what LFG means, just Google it. It's, it's just going to save me cursing one more time, but it's, it's, it came out in 1999, right? The song did. So it came out pretty close to the release of this, of this movie, you know? So um, in a lot of ways, this was the first time that I ever heard of the song. Um, I don't think I'd really ever heard it anywhere else because 
I mean, the first time I heard, I just assumed it was some, you know, some mix that came out in the early nineties because it just kind of has almost like a retro feel to it, despite the fact that, you know, it came out the same time the movie did. Yeah. Um, and so for those of you that, you know, may be wondering, have I heard this anywhere else? Well, that's kind of what we're here for. Um, th- this actual song would go on to be featured in Gran Turismo 3. Um, it would also be used in the trailer for Disaster Movie, which I still haven't seen yet, but I've heard it's at least good for one or two laughs. And it was also shown in the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show in 2007, um, which I would expect it'd be very difficult to walk to this song, considering how fast <laughs> it is. <laughs> but but hey, hey, somebody gave it a shot. Um, and yeah, and finally in 2014, it was used uh, for a Kia Sportage uh, TV ad. So um, this this song has managed to you know keep some legs under it. Yeah, and also I find it kind of weird. Um, there's used for a Kia Sportage, and a Kia Sportage was nowhere, nowhere on the list of cars that needed to be stolen. No, no, absolutely no. not. And if if there was a song out there that could stop the rock, or a, a car rather that could stop the rock, it would not be a Kia Sportage. It probably wouldn't be. As a matter of fact, I have to imagine that. Um, if they were told to steal a Kia Sportage, they'd be like, go fuck yourself. We're not doing that. Just <laughs> yeah. buy your damn Kia Sportage. <laughs> just, just take it out of the, take, take like 3% out of the deal and just, just go buy yourself go that Kia it. Sportage. Yeah, we... yeah. Just take it right <laughs> at the top. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, dude, just, just another, once again, another example, just, just a great pick for songs in a movie. You know, it, it doesn't distract from what's going on and uh, yeah, just, just a great addition to this film think of a better way than to end it by talking through some of the list of the 50 mm-hmm. now obviously we're not going to do a pop quiz here because there's no way to memorize every single name no. and the combinations that went with them Mm-mm. so instead what i wanted to do okay is ask you about some of these cars because on this list there's a lot of things that you know seemingly would make sense that folks would want right i mean mm-hmm. there's there's the uh, Chevy Camaro Z28 that's on here. There's Aston Martins. Um, you know, there's several different Cadillacs. We've got mm-hmm. Ferraris. Uh, we've got Jaguars or Jaguar, as the, the British would say in their commercials. Jaguar. Um, yeah, the Jaguar, I believe is how they say it. The Mark Jag. Strong. Yeah, actor Mark Strong, who is the spokesman for <laughs> Jaguar, says it exactly that way. Um, but uh, coming through the list, the, mm-hmm. the, the 2000s list at least, one of the ones okay. that pops out of me, was the 1971 Di Tommaso Pantera. Oh, yes. Uh, Codename mm-hmm. Kate. And, I, you know, I've only seen a handful of these in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the idea that you could find one in Long Beach during a weekend that you just possibly could have roped in 49 other cars, <laughs> that one seems like one that I don't think would be, you know, that, that's the only one that kind of removes a little bit of logic for me in mm-hmm. this. Um, how it's possible that one could possibly be there just at the right time. Yep. Um, so that's one that, that stuck out really. A little, yeah, a little bit. Um, but there are other ones in here that I'm not quite sure would ever make a list. Um, one of them being a 1999 Lincoln Navigator, codenamed Kimberly. Um, I'm not quite sure why that one ever made the list in the first place. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. That's weird. Like um, the reason why it's weird is not because there's there are no redeeming qualities to a Navigator. Navigators are they're nice cars, they're nice SUVs, but why would you need to have it stolen for you? For you, like. <laughs> You can yeah. buy a Lincoln Navigator pretty easily, and I'm guessing that the guy who's having 50 cars stolen is going to charge more for them than a Ford dealership. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, <laughs> I, I, I don't mind Lincolns at all, okay? We got a loaner one time when uh, we had some service done on, on my wife's car, 
And we ended up getting a Lincoln to drive around and we loved it. We thought it was great. But ex- yeah. that's exactly the point. Like, why would someone need to steal a Lincoln Navigator? I mean, this, you know, uh, Raymond Kalitri's posse, like his his muscle, mm-hmm. there's probably one of the guys in the parking lot pulling up in one of these things. I yeah, mean, he could just gave it to him. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to go find that. No. Like, so, so, so that was another one on the list that that really stuck out to me because it just mm-hmm. doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, another one of them would be the 2000 GMC Yukon, codenamed Megan. Um you know, another one of those head scratchers. Why would you need to hire someone to go out mm-hmm. and get that for you? Yeah. Same thing with the uh, it's the uh, the Escalade, uh, which is the also the famous um, rent a cop scene is when they're stealing the Escalade. You can yeah. buy a Cadillac Escalade pretty readily. <laughs> like yeah. why, why would you need that stolen? Yeah, I mean the same thing kind of goes for the uh, 2000 Toyota Land Cruiser, codenamed Kathy. I don't know why anybody would need to steal that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and. The, the one of the ones that I, I did think um, was funny because when you're looking at the lists of these, uh, the 1950 Mercury Custom, aka Gabriella, um, they don't really give that one any any screen time. Um, but there there were some of these interesting ones on here that they they did. Obviously, we saw the Mercedes girls. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we had uh, Dorothy, Donna, Samantha, Ellen, Kimberly. You know, those ones are kind of hot cars. Um, Cadillac got some love on screen. Um, I, I couldn't remember if they did show all the Porsches though, because obviously they were kind of bundled together, but I can't remember if they did them all at once. I don't think they did. Honestly, the only Porsche I re- really remember from it is the 911 from the beginning of the movie, which obviously they would have to steal again because yeah. the first one gets impounded. And unlike the other Mercedes, they don't go for that one in the impound. So no. they have to re-steal the Porsche. Uh, yeah. But I don't remember really seeing any of the classic because I think they've got some like classic like 80s 911s on there um, that we don't really see any screen time with. Um, yeah, I mean, the original 911 was Tanya, codenamed Tanya. Mm-hmm. Trying to think of the 88 959 would have been Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, other than that, I, I couldn't remember actually seeing a whole lot of screen time for them. Um, because you know, in a movie about cars, right? I would think you'd want to show off some of the, the, the rarest ones, you know, in the bunch. Um, and and instead, you're you're talk, talking to yourself about a Ford F two fifty modified pickup, codename Ann. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> also, another just rare vehicle, a Ford F two fifty. You can't get those. Can't get those anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Whoever this this mob boss is that's trying to steal these fifty cars. <laughs> God, we just can't find F-250s around yeah, here. Yeah, it's bizarre. Like, it's, I know, like, we're in South America, but, yeah, they don't sell F-250s in South America. We just, we just need it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> head scratchers, for sure. But <laughs> at the same time, that, that's what I think if you're, if you're a fan of Gone in 60 Seconds and you mm-hmm. haven't combed through the actual list of 50, get, you start digging in a little bit. It's, yeah. there, there's some fun ones in there, but there are some very confusing ones as well. And going back to our point, right? Gone in 60 seconds, it's not, it's, it's, it's not the most big budget film you'll ever watch. But it is one that has a ton of charm built within it. You know, you've got a ton of, of actors that have won awards that seemingly got roped into this. And even though they're not all playing main characters, I mean, they, they just knock it out of the park. So if for some reason you didn't give this movie a chance, you know, if you, next time you see it pop up on, on Netflix, you know, not a sponsor, by the way. No, not a sponsor. Um, not a sponsor. We <laughs> are we are yeah. sorely yeah. lacking in the sponsor department. If anyone would like to 
throw some cash our way. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. If, if you want me to sell one of those, like those things you put on your tongue so that you can, you know, groom your cat, I'll, I'll give that a shot. <laughs> but, 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 but give, giving things a shot gone mm-hmm. in 60 seconds absolutely deserves it. I, I think it's, it's one of those at this point, I'd even consider it a hidden gem because it's 20 years later. I yeah. mean, it's one of those things. It's just going to get buried by time until it's rebooted again, which I'm sure it will be. Everything gets rebooted eventually. Everything old is new again. Yeah. In this case, it literally is new again because it's a reboot. But I think it's one of those rare cases where a reboot actually improves on the original. This one stands on its own and it develops its entirely own mythos. So for that, I think it's absolutely worth the time to sit back down and watch that one. Joe, it's really a shame that this movie that still doesn't get more love. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for entertainment value alone, this is really an early two thousands time capsule. Yeah, I mean, even though the Cage Brockheimer connection has typically been money, it doesn't always mean that people are going to show up. But hopefully, with some of our insights today, at least one to two more people will give this movie another shot. Yeah, and if you think a brick is an underrated tool or this was an underrated gem of a movie, then join us in the conversation on YouTube, uh, Twitter, and Facebook by searching for Digital Dissect One or Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. Please also leave us a review no matter where you found us and be sure to tell a friend as both of these really help us grow our channel and keep bringing you more content. Next week, we'll be taking a look at the Pokemon Go mobile game and mapping the journey it's taken us on so far. And until next time, keep on dissecting. Dissecting.